0: Well, good morning. Good morning. Hey, all right. Just making sure it's still this morning. We're still here. We haven't all left yet with the children. Today we continue our series on the book of Matthew. The beginning of our study here, we'll see on this first slide, the gospel of Matthew helps us understand and recognize that Jesus is the coming king. That has been granted all authority by the Father and has made us his emissaries to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. This is the message of Matthew. Last week we studied chapter 1 where we saw this lengthy genealogy of Jesus, the coming king. He is the king. And Matthew tries to make no bones about that and does not try to conceal it or hide it in any way. Jesus is the coming king. In chapter 2, we're going to see there's a rival. There's a competing king. There's another king on the throne. We'll see what transpires. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 2, let's see what happens here with this coming king. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question. What's the longest you have searched for something? Perhaps it was a set of car keys, the remote, or maybe something a little more tantalizing, like a trip. Or we're trying to find something or someone, or go see something. Years ago when Rebecca and I were young, a long time ago. So when you're old like me, you can say stuff like that. So back in the day when Rebecca and I got married, we were talking about places we'd like to go and visit and I had, had a bucket list of three places I, I wanted to see. They all started with a, the letter I and one of those was Israel. Well that's 6,000 miles away. That's something I, I wanted to journey to go see. I wanted to go on this journey to go see it it took us a while to get there. By God's grace, we got to go. I mean, it, it was worth it. There's sometimes you may search for something and or go somewhere, and you're like, no, nah, it wasn't worth it. You ever take a long hike to see something, you're like, no, nah, we're never doing that again. And in fact, if I could call a helicopter to get me out of this place, I'd do it right now. There are some journeys that aren't worth it. But today we're going to see not just only two kings, the true king and a competing king. We're also going to see two different journeys. And we'll see... What happened on the journey? So let's look at Matthew 2. We'll read verses 1 through 12. First, we see the journey of the seeking. In Matthew 2, 1 through 12, the journey of the seeking. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who is born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship. So Jesus is the coming king, but all of a sudden, now well, we have a competing king in verse number one. There's a rival on the throne. But look at verse one. Jesus is born in Jerusalem in the days of Herod, Herod the king. And we're, we're seeing this tension right away. Can you think of stories in history or even the Bible where there's a competing king? And, and how does it tend to end? Usually with violence. Usually grand persuasion or also bloodshed to make sure there's only one king. You can think of David and Saul. There was a king. There was a newly appointed king. How did King Saul take that news? Good, bad. He tried to kill him. Numerous times. You can tell he obviously wasn't a warrior because he couldn't hit him with a, 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 he's got a spear and he can't hit him. He's sitting down playing, you can't even hit the guy in the chair. But he tries to kill him a number of times. He sends the entire army after him. Get rid of the competition. Annihilate them. This small child, the Messiah, in our text here, the Christ is already a threat and is already under threat. Yet Matthew has another focus in the first few verses. Look at verses one and two. We see these these Gentile, these pagan wise men coming from the east. What do they do? To what do they do when they come? Why did they come? They came to do what? To worship the King of the Jews. Who are they talking to? The King of the Jews. What do they not do when they see this King of the Jews? What don't they do? They don't worship him. You, (laughs) you sit on a throne of lies, right? He smells like beef and cheese. This is not the right guy. You're not the king of the Jews. We are looking for the true king. We are looking for the true king. They do not bow down. They came to worship the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the prophesied Christ, as we saw last week. This is one foretold by Eve. uh, Sorry, foretold to Eve that through her seed, the seed of the woman. One would come that would crush the serpent's head. He would come through not just the seed of the woman, but through the line descendant of Abraham. And would come, as we see at the end of Genesis 49, he would come, he'd be a king from the line of Judah. The seed of Abraham through the line of Judah. Balaam in Numbers 24, 17 went so far as to say, listen to what Balaam says in number 24, 17. I, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. What do you you see, Balaam? A star. A what? A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. You see a star coming, a rising king. That's interesting. What does the star signify when it comes that a eternal King is coming? And we'll get into that in time to come. That's fourteen hundred years before this moment. That here we have the seed of the woman from Genesis one: right? a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, Jesus the genius. Yeah, this is the beginning, the Genesis of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. He's from the line of tribe of Judah, and all of a sudden, a, a star appears. Signifying what? That the true star, the bright and morning star has been born. The king of all the world has come. He's come. Let's keep reading. Look at verse number 3. When Herod the king, the king quote unquote, heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes, the people, he inquired of them when the Christ was to be born. Herod does not like the news No, megusa, No, it's not fun, I don't like that He's troubled, but it's not just he's troubled All of Jerusalem's troubled with him Well, why on earth would they care About if he's the king or not So historically, Herod the Great is a genius Truly is Look at some of the things that he did during his tenure. The man did some amazing things. When it comes to building and expanding his little kingdom. He is also unbelievably ruthless. Amazing genius when it came to building and maneuvering. When it came to possible insurrection or possible attention garnered at his throne... He had a very quick trigger finger. One author noted about Herod the Great. Listen to this. This is about Herod the Great. He, he murdered his favorite wife. So <laughs> I'm assuming he had more than one, but certainly he had at least one. He murdered her. He, he went beyond that. He murdered her mother. So it's, let's take out the mother and the mother-in-law. And it's just one clean sweep. Not trying to make light of that. Herod did. Your possible threat to the throne kill you, kill your mom. Two of her sons and his eldest son. Augustus, the Roman emperor, finally acknowledged, listen to this, what Augustus said of Herod the Great, it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son. It's safer to be Herod's pig than his son. So all of Israel, uh, Jerusalem's troubled with him, like what is this maniac going to do? Because if there's any hint that somebody could be going for his throne, he levels them. He doesn't just level them, he levels anyone associated with them. So Herod calls the priests, scribes, and asks the question, where where is this long-awaited king? Where, Where is he to be born? Look at their answer in verse number five. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. You write the sound of this, down, this is Micah 5.2 is where they're quoting from, according to the prophet Micah. But it's pertinent to the quest to the Magi. So this is the location you need to go to, Bethlehem. But let me read you the rest of the verse in Micah 5.2, because Matthew gives us the destination, but let me read you the rest of Matthew 5.2. It says, who's coming forth? Yes, he's this king, he's this ruler whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. He's this eternal I am. So when Jesus says I, I, before Abraham was I am, this is the coming one spoken of by Micah 5 2. He, he's from ancient, of, he's eternal. We're looking for one that's going to be born in Bethlehem who is eternal. Also, Matthew mentions that this coming king will shepherd my People Israel. The Lord is my shepherd. Well I thought this guy's gonna be the shepherd. Well he will, because he's also the Lord. That the Messiah, the Christ would shepherd God's people, was also prophesied seven hundred years before Christ. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah forty-nine, ten through eleven. Behold, the Lord God comes with might verse eleven, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms 550 550 years before Christ. Ezekiel wrote, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. You're like, well, that's not talking about the Messiah. That's talking about David. This is written 450 years after David. David's done. David's dead. He's gone. Speaking of the line of David, so he says one shepherd, my servant David, he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. A couple of chapters later in Ezekiel 37, he says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Micah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, this is the eternal king, the shepherd of God's people. The coming king, the long to Messiah, will be born in the city of David, Bethlehem, and is the eternal king, the shepherd that they have been looking for forever. Ages. What does Herod do with this news? Look at verse 7. Inherited Herod summoned the wise men secretly. He ascertained from them what time the star had appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem. Saying, go and search diligently for the child and, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. I'll put that in quotes because you'll see, if you've never read this before, you'll see he, he does not mean to worship him. He actually means to kill him. And we'll see that in a few, few verses. But let, move on to verse number 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Have you ever had to take a rest stop when you're really close to your destination? Parents, you've been there. It's like you just stopped. Everybody got fed. We only have 30 minutes to go. Everybody's in the car. All the car seats are buckled in 15 seconds from getting onto the highway. I have to go really bad. We're almost there. Can you hold it? No. Leads to an emergency, pull off the side of the highway, you know what I'm talking about, like you're so close we're so close, they travel all the way to Jerusalem, we find that the king we're looking for the true king of Israel, he's not here, we gotta go one step further, thankfully this one, Bethlehem is only 5 to 6 miles away that's it, we can get that we can get there, 5 to 6 miles away, that's, that's great so they, they go and find, and what do they find? They don't find an infant in a manger. What do they find? They, they find a young child, a toddler in a house, as verse 11 speaks of. And what do they do when they see this young child? They fell down and worshiped. What do they come to do, verse 1 and 2? They came to worship the king of the Jews. They spoke to the king of the Jews, and they like, yeah, pass. Pass. But now they found him. What an appropriate response to the Messiah. To worship. This eternal king, this compassionate shepherd, deserves our praise. He deserves our worship. He deserves our allegiance as king. He deserves everything we have. If that's the case, what should we expect from the wise men? Well, they gave him gifts, and it seems like they held nothing back. Everything they gave him was of extreme value. What do they bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Much is made about these gifts, not going to spend a lot of time on this, but gold has this idea of being connected to a king, incense for, the, for him being a god, and myrrh preparing him for his death. He is king, he is fully god, and he will be even presented myrrh, even at his death in Mark fifteen, twenty three, while he's on the cross. But don't miss what the wise men did. Don't get enamored just by the gifts. What did they do when they met the true king? They worshipped. They fell under his rule and reign. And they said, all we have is yours. Do not forget this point. So if you take anything away from them, understand what their response was to the king of kings. They realize he is worthy of it all. So we've seen two kings, but we've only seen one journey. Let's look at the, let's look at the second journey. We see the journey of the son in verse 13. So the journey of the seeking, I look at the journey of the son, verse 13. Now when they had speaking of the wise men departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother. And you see, let me pause real quick. When We keep seeing through Matthew, he'll say the child and his mother, just reminding us, Joseph is not the father. This is very specific. The child and the child's mother, not your child. So just coming back to Jesus is born of a virgin. The child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She's refused to be comforted because they are no more. Earlier I mentioned that Herod had no desire to come and worship the king. He, he wanted to come and slit the king's throat. He wanted to eliminate him. Herod, however, is too late. An angel comes, warns Joseph, and they take off. But the atrocity is still being done. Herod doesn't know that the True king has left, sends his henchmen to Bethlehem and says, Annihilate, kill every Hebrew male child you find in there and then within that surrounding region. We don't know how long, we don't know how far. We know it's a small town, would have been Lexington like, just a tiny town. We know how far that perimeter went beyond there. Imagine the wailing on that day. I mean, if, they, if we're just talking just this church, if henchmen showed up in here, walked into on the authority of the government, walked into our nursery, found every male child two years old and under, and killed them, are you kidding me? This cannot be happening again. You kidding me? This cannot be happening again. And somebody's like, well, what do do you mean again? When have young Hebrew male children been killed by an awful ruler? There are two instances I want to draw your attention to, just in your mind. Stay here in Matthew. But if you were here in our study of Exodus, you would remember well that in Exodus chapter 1, we have a short genealogy short genealogy, which again, we're thankful they compress them. This one's even shorter. Short genealogy in Exodus 1. And then we hear of a problematic ruler, a king. Let's call him, I don't know, Pharaoh. He sees a threat in the Jewish people and he asks that all Hebrew males, these young males, these little kids that are born, would be killed once they're born. Yet, one escapes. One escapes. His name is Moses. And God's going to use this one that escapes to lead his people from slavery to freedom out of, what's that place? Egypt. Does that sound similar to what we're discussing right now? Sounds awful familiar, doesn't it? In our study... We saw that Jesus is the true son of God. Jesus is what Israel could not be. We will see this as time goes on through Matthew 1 through 5. It is undeniable, and it's unbelievable. It's like, once you see it, you can't look away, because it's, it's glorious. Jesus is the true son. His life parallels that of Israel, and everywhere where they failed, he succeeds. That's the first time God called Israel. His son was in Exodus 3 and 4, and now we see a different son is being born here in Matthew chapter 2. But God called his son, Israel, out of Egypt. They murdered the young Hebrew male. So in on Matthew 1, we have a longer genealogy. We have an opposing ruler, killing of the Hebrew males. One escapes. God will, in the following verses, call his son out of Egypt yet again. That's the first instance. Out of Egypt, I have to call my son, which goes back to the quote from Hosea 11, which speaks of something that is to come. The second wailing is that of Hebrew mothers in the book of Jeremiah. So if you're looking at your verse here, and you look at Matthew 2, 18, some of you will have a cross-reference that this is from Jeremiah 31. And that is correct. It's written in Jeremiah 31, but you need to read chapter 30 and all of 31 to see kind of the context of w- w- what's going on here. Ernie helped us out today with a little reference to the sense of, I can't remember what your Bible said, the sense of restoration that's coming for Israel, or hope, I can't remember. But there's this idea that that hope's going to come even though hard times are also coming. So stay here in Matthew 2, but listen to what I'm going to walk you through in Jeremiah 30 and 31, because you have to understand the context in which we're getting this quote, because sometimes it's like, I don't know, this kind of doesn't make sense. Are we just talking about the grief? We're not just talking about the grief of the mothers. There's a reason any connection to the Messiah in Jeremiah 30 and 31. In Jeremiah 30, the Lord speaks of a restoration for Israel. Israel's getting, going to get the boot out of the land, that they're going to get sent packing. But the Lord promises in Jeremiah 33 to bring them back. After exile, and God brings them back to a land, listen to this, in Jeremiah 30, 21, he will raise a ruler from among their midst, a king. Jeremiah thirty twenty one, after, sometime after the exile, and they get back in the land, he will raise up one from their midst, a ruler. Okay, you got this idea. In chapter 31, 3, God reminds them of his everlasting love. He does. He loves them. But also, there are consequences for their choices and their sins. That's why they're going to be sent packing. They, they got to go to exile. They got to go through this, go through judgment. There will be weeping in Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen. The mothers are going to be weeping as they watch their children ripped from their arms and sent packing, like people, like Daniel. Imagine Daniel's mother the day where he's sent away. And so children will be ripped from their arms and they're going to be sent packing because of their sin and their refusal to put themselves underneath the authority of the Lord. There will be weeping. But in 3117, God promises hope for their future. What kind of weeping and what kind of hope? So again, you have moms watching their children trotted off to the foreign lands. That's why we read in Matthew 2.18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. In Jeremiah 40, verse 1, Ramah was the location. That's the launch pad for the, for the departure for exile. We're going to leave from Ramah, and we're heading to Babylon. From there, the Israelites were sent. Mothers would have been bawling, and it says they refused to be comforted. Can you imagine a mom watching your child being ripped from her arms, and you say, hey, calm down. It's not that big of a deal. It's like, no, there's no comfort. What if you try to give them a hug, pushing you away just in grief? Unconsolable. Jeremiah speaks of what is to come. And like Rachel, who died giving birth, these mothers would die inside watching their children being sent off. Interesting enough, Rachel was buried in a place real close to Bethlehem. Well, how does this connect to Jesus? So there's lamentation, the mourning of Jeremiah, but also there's hope. Well, what hope is there? Just that they're going to come back into the land? They will come back to land. That is great. There's hope there. But the text continues. You recall... The great news that comes after this terrible sight, hope comes, so after they come back to Jerusalem, back to Jerusalem from Babylon, after this weeping, God will raise up, 30, 21, a ruler from their midst. What will God do after this ruler is raised? He will enact in Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, a new covenant. You heard of the covenant he made with Abraham? The covenant he made with David? when jeremiah 31 jeremiah says the israelite people should be looking for a messiah a ruler from their midst who is going to enforce or bring about usher in a new covenant what is this new covenant listen to what he says in jeremiah 31 33 for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days this is what ernie was reading le- earlier and i apologize to him i know it's a long text there's a reason why he had to read that many verses So next time that he signs up for scripture and he's going to ask, how many verses are there? It's going to be 75, Ernie. But you have to, we have to read the whole thing. Because this is the context of the hope that's coming. We, in 31 and 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on stones. No, I'll put my law in their hearts, within them. I will be their God. They should be on my people. They should no longer teach each other know his neighbor and each his brother. For saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. A ruler is going to come from their midst. This is hope restored. A new covenant better than the Abrahamic covenant. Better than the covenant because it's the fulfillment of it. The seed of the woman is coming. This star that's rising out of Judah. And he will come and enact and usher in a new covenant where we're not having to worry about text being written on the wall, go make disciples. It's going to be written and imprinted on my heart and on your heart. We're not have to worry about the presence of God leaving the temple. He will dwell in us. The new covenant is coming through the new covenant maker, which is this one that will rise up from among them. Where is he going to be born? Bethlehem. The king is coming. He is coming. Wrapping this up, one commentator said, the tears begin in Jeremiah's day. They're climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. The heir of David's throne has come. The exile." is finally over. The true Son of God has arrived, and He will introduce the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. This is why this quote is here in Matthew 2. It's not just about the weeping mothers, but the hope that comes. They were looking for a ruler from their midst, the seed of David, the king. God says it's not just going to be a kingdom. Everything is changing. You're not worried about my presence hovering over the temple. I will be with you. I will be in you. You don't have to worry about reading the law. It will be tattooed on your brain and heart. Look for the new covenant maker. Let's finish out. Look at verse 19. But when Herod died, that would be spoken of by the prophets might be be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Being given instruction by the angel, Joseph brings his family back to Nazareth, which we learn from Luke 2, 4 was Joseph's hometown. He goes back to his homeland. Matthew makes an odd connection at the end that he would be called a Nazarene in verse 23, and there are many disputes over what's going on here, what is meant by this, because we don't have an exact quote in the Old Testament that says he'd be called a Nazarene, Matthew doesn't say we have an exact quote. What does he say? He says, so it would be filled by the prophets. So, plural. A number of them have pointed to this. Some think that this is the sense that he's going to be from Galilee and a Nazarene, and they it to Isaiah 53.3, that the suffering servant that's going to come, the Messiah, would be despised and rejected. And well, how do we know that a Nazarene would be despised and rejected? Do, do you remember <laughs> in John one forty-six when Nathaniel hears Jesus is from Nazareth he's like can anything can anything good come out of Nazareth can anything good come out of Jersey it's like you know like we're, there's some place you're like come on sorry if you're from Jersey <laughs> so in Michigan is like can anything good come out of Saginaw like Saginaw come on we all have, there's our place where we're like oh come on can anything good come from that place so maybe it's, it's that sense of despised and rejected could also be in Isaiah 11 not just Isaiah 53 3 which says that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch, a Nazar. From his roots shall bear fruit. And they think that word, the branch, because the Messiah is often called in the Old Testament, the branch, the Nazar, Natser, the Nazarene. So I'm not, to be honest, I'm not sure where to put if it's this one or that one. But the more I kept reading it, I kept seeing this is to be filled by the prophets, plural could just be all of the above and more. It could be. But the, the sense is that we have something to learn about Jesus, not just from the fact that he's a Nazarene, because some like, well, maybe it's the Nazareth vow and how he lived his life. A lot of different ways we could go. But l- let me walk through this first. What, what, what can we learn about Christ in Matthew 2? So first we see as far as learning about Jesus here in our next slide, Jesus is the son of God. He is the son of God. Verse 15, right, what does he say in verse number 15? At the very bottom of that, out of Egypt I have called my son. Jesus is the son of God. That's what he called Israel. That's what he's calling the Messiah. Jesus is the son of God. It goes back to Hosea 11, 1, that out of e- Egypt I've called my son. Next, Jesus is the coming king. Granted authority to reign forever. Verse 2 and 6, what does verse 2 say? Right, we have come to worship the king of the Jews. Where is he, he who is born king of the Jews? Look at verse number 6. You, o Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers, for some you shall come a, a ruler who shepherd my people. We read the rest of the verse, which says he's going to have this eternal kingship. He will reign forever. And then next in hope, Jesus ushers in the new covenant by being the despised, suffering servant. What did we read that he would do in this new covenant? What's the last thing he has the ability to do in that new covenant? He has the ability to forgive their sins and their iniquity. Well, where's Matthew keep pointing us to? The cross. It has to come. The hope we have, the hope we will find, point to the cross. That's where our hope is at. So Jesus ushers in the new covenant, which the Jewish people should have been looking for because Jeremiah foretold about it in Jeremiah 31. Isaiah spoke of the despised suffering servants. So let me recap. Let me put this all in one sentence here. You can go to the next one there, Ty. Jesus the Son of God is the coming King that's been granted authority to reign forever. He ushers in hope in the new covenant by being made the despised suffering servant. That Matthew is trying to point us to in Matthew chapter 2. He's the Son of God. He's the coming King. He still has authority to reign over all. He will bring in hope. He will bring in this new covenant by being the despised suffering servant. What do we learn? Well, I want to look at couple things. It's just simply the responses to our Messiah. Look at our next here, the response to the Messiah. You, you can oppose him. That's a response in our text here. It's a bad one. But this is the one Herod chose. He could oppose the king. But as we found out in Matthew 2.20, Herod's not an eternal king. Dead. He's gone. His kingdom's over. Mm, not so with the true king. We look forward to the cross and he will die, but he will rise and lives forevermore. He opposed the true king. His plan failed. Whenever men Try to plot and plan against the Lord, it ends in spectacular, embarrassing fashion. Instead of killing the true king, he commits an atrocity. So this opposition, it's, it's an awful choice. And in Matthew 21:44, we'll see that Christ talks about any of those that oppose him will be crushed underneath him. In Matthew 21:44, "Friends do not oppose this king. That's the first response. The second is back in 2.4. Remain indifferent. Remain indifferent to him. Look back at 2.4. It's interesting to me. And the assembly of the chief priests and the scribes, the people inquired of where he would be born. So, right, he talks to the chief priests. Where's Jesus going to be born? They tell him that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But it says that Herod was troubled, verse 3, and all Jerusalem with him. They're troubled, Herod's troubled that there's an opposing king that could be born. They give them the location of the king. Can can you imagine the priests and the scribes who know the word so well to hear the possibility that the long-awaited Messiah could be born six miles southwest of here and you don't go Are you kidding me? The one we sing about every sabbath The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the scepter, the scepter, the star rising out, this eternal kinghood, the line of David, the root, the shoot of Jesse He's born. We know this because we're all troubled with what on earth is this maniac, Herod, going to do. But we get no reference to hop on a camel, Herod, and go six miles to see this king. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's six miles. Pagan men are traveling thousands of miles as far as we know. They think maybe... At a low estimate, three to six months to get there. Just to find out if this is possibly the case. And we have people that say that they've known the word their entire life. Yeah, it's not worth my time. It's not worth the dig. Can you imagine being in church your entire life, hearing it and hearing it and hearing it? In hearing it and hearing it, and yet never responding to it. God help us, they're that close, but remain indifferent. The last response is out of the wise men, they gave of their time, their effort, their treasures. For us as Christians, we have to realize, too, that Christ deserves our time, our efforts, our treasures, our worship. He deserves our unquestioned allegiance. So what does all this mean for us today? First off, friend, we we have to ask you, how will you respond to the King? How will you respond to the King? Will you oppose Him? Will you remain indifferent to Him? Or will you acknowledge Him and put yourself under Him? Will you trust in His King? The Bible says, for, for by grace are you saved through faith. For by grace, God giving you what you don't deserve, are you saved through faith. Faith is believing without seeing. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works that no one can boast, friend, you cannot get to heaven. And when you see Jesus face to face and he's like, why should I? And you're like, well, look at all the good that I did. No one will get into heaven based off what they've done. No one gets to heaven based off what they've done. God has made it that way. So you would simply acknowledge him, accept his forgiveness, come to him by faith, and he's like, I'll save you. But you're not going to get to heaven and boast about all you've done. You're going to get to heaven and boast about what all I've done. That's how this is going to work. Christ is a coming king, friend, who can save. We saw in Jeremiah 31, he can forgive your sins and iniquities. Place your faith and trust in him. Each week we walk through this, we we encourage you to admit that you, like I, like like we, we are sinners, we do wrong. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then call on his name. Whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you do that today? We know that Jesus did come. He did die. He did rise. He did sit on high and he still lives today to intercede on behalf of his own. Come to him today. If you have questions on how you can do that, see myself, see a Christian friend that you came with. We'd love to walk you through that today. For those of you that are here that claim to know Christ as their God and King, let me ask you a couple questions. Christian, are you living in the hope Christ has given you? Are you living in the hope? Christ has given you it by fulfilling the prophecy of jeremiah christ brought hope to the world he brings hope to you listen to this from romans fifteen thirteen. 13 reminds minds of this he says may the god of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the holy spirit you may abound in hope christian is it dark what did we sing earlier today? When, when the darkness closes in, still I will say what? Blessed be the name. We sang that, but when the darkness closes in, do we still say it? Some of you are, man, you, it feels dark. You're like wondering, Lord, what on earth are you doing? It's been so hard. It's been so trying. We still say, blessed be the name? Even though tragedy comes, sometimes it's of our own choice, right? Sometimes we bring it on ourselves, like they did in Jeremiah's day. Sometimes it's just, we live in a broken, fallen world. But the Messiah came to bring hope and a new covenant. His presence is with you wherever you go. Will you respond to him? Hope in the one that can say to your heart right now, Christian, peace, be still. By faith, hope in Christ because he gives it to you. Next, what have you given to the king? What have you given to the king? Or maybe it's better to ask, what do you refuse to give to the king? That's a different question, isn't it? What, what have you given him? You're like, well, I've, I've given him my heart. Well, that's a good answer. It's a good Sunday school one. It's true. It's good. And uh, yeah, I write a check. Yeah, put it back in the box. So I give him a lot. What do you refuse to give him, Christian? Is there something that he, you feel he has no right to? What do you skimp on? You can't commit to be here on a regular basis? Can't give your time to the king? Won't give to his work like he'd have you? If Jesus were here right now, what would you give him? What would you promise? All that I have is yours. Christian, he is here. For two Or more are gathered. There I am in their midst. He's here. What will you give to your king? What are you hiding in the corners? What locks have you put on the closet? Christ, you've given me life, you've given me hope. I give you all you are worthy of it all. Will you give all to the king? By faith, hold nothing back. Lastly, will you join me in praising Christ for being the son of God, the coming king that ushered in hope in the new covenant by being made the despised, the suffering servant? We sing he's worthy of it all, friend. He's worthy of your life. Give it to Him if you don't know Him. Christian, He is worthy of it all. He's worthy of it all. Let's take time. Now, we do every now and then. We're going to quiet our hearts here. Let's take 30 seconds as the music team comes up. And let's respond. What would the Lord have you do? Respond as you see fit. If it means you need to turn in your chair, get on your knees, do it. If it means you need to go in the back and pray, do it. If you want to come up front, do it. I don't care. Respond as you think the Lord would have you. Friend, if you don't know the Lord, I beg you, come to Him. If you do know the Lord, what would He have you do? Let's take 30 seconds, quiet our hearts, I'll pray, and we'll stand and sing our last song. sin as let the crimson stain he, he washed it white as snow but these are words we sing and yet my heart our hearts rarely rarely make you our all or we rarely acknowledge you like we should Father, forgive us. So Lord, I pray that you allow the Christians here in Lexington Baptist Church to recognize you as our true king, to put ourselves in full allegiance to you, Lord, and hold nothing back. May we, like the wise men, give more than just our time and our efforts, but may we give our treasures, our, our unquestioned allegiance to you, for you are the true king. Lord for those that are struggling. When they're storm tossed, you can't see the light. Lord, may their hope still. our friends that are coming week after week that may not know you as Savior. Lord, I'm so glad that they're here. I I pray, Lord, that you'd press on their heart how amazing you are. If you'd be kind that even today you would convince them of how much you love them, that you died for them, and may today be the day of salvation for them. In Jesus' name we pray.